What an intro. <laughs> I've never been called a fine specimen <laughs> by another man before, but I'll take it. <laughs> by another man, yeah. Cool. Oh, well, welcome, welcome everyone this morning. I'm not sure how to move on from that, but we'll uh, give it a go. No, it's, um, it really is um, awesome to be here. And, you know, to be honest, I can't think of another morning where there would be more excuses not to be here. To be, let's be honest, school holidays, crazy sicknesses going throughout, like, every family with kids and then being passed on to the families that don't have kids. Just watch out. There's a literal thunderstorm going on outside with thunder and lightning and rain so hard that we can almost get through the transmission gully motorway section uh, without, you know, sliding out in our car. But, you know, in, in all honesty, it's worth you being here. And it's worth you being here because contained within these words, these scriptures, this living book of, of truth is a life-changing reality, a power and a substance that will literally change your entire life on the inside. And so this morning we're continuing to, to bring to light what's contained in these living scriptures. I was reading this morning and Peter, he says, no, ma- no, no prophecy of scripture, no, interesting, prophecy of scripture is a matter of man's own interpretation. But men, as they were moved by the Spirit of God, put down in words the reality that's contained within Christ. So in in sharing this morning, you're hearing from me, but I certainly hope that you're not hearing my interpretation of Scripture. You might hear my examples. You might hear my typologies. You might hear the way that I view things, but ultimately no matter of Scripture is of man's interpretation, right? So we're bringing to light, every time you hear something here on a Sunday morning, Sunday night, we're bringing to light not our own interpretation of things, but the truth as it actually is. Because if I can interpret something and give you a good sermon, it might tickle your ears, you might enjoy feeling encouraged, even inspired. But ultimately, it's the truth that will make you free. And so when we, uh, when we do this, it's about receiving the implanted word, which is able to, does anyone know? Save your soul. Save you on the inside. So, Father, I pray that as we get into your living scriptures this morning, we would hear a word that penetrates our hearts and renews our minds, Father, that we would see and think as you see and think. Father, that we wouldn't hear an interpretation of Scripture, but, Father, we would receive the living Scriptures, the living truth that makes us free, that we would walk out of here with a new perspective, a new attitude, a new vision and sight of you. Father, not something that is new per se, but the age-old truth that does a work and brings to light who you are and who we are in you. So we pray this in your awesome name. Amen. All right. So this morning, we're continuing on our our theme, the divine nature of Abba, the divine nature of our Father, looking at 1 Corinthians 13. And um, 
So if you've got your Bibles, you can flick to 1 Corinthians 13, but we'll stay there temporarily just to kind of set the scene. And then if you've got another finger, you can slot it into Matthew chapter 16. So those are our two verses, Matthew chapter 16 and 1 Corinthians chapter 13. All right, so can anyone tell me um, what, what, what we were looking at last week? Social justice and divine righteousness, an overwhelming sense of uh, memory. <laughs> Social justice and divine righteousness. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'll just read it again. It says this, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So last week we are talking about the difference between social justice and divine righteousness and how both of these two things are absolutely essential, but there's a certain flow there's a one and a two going on, that divine righteousness, the reality of God himself living in us, comes before then going and doing works and expressing that nature on the earth. We looked at part A of the scripture, I'd say. If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor and surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love. I feel like that's where we left things off. And this morning, we're going to be looking at these words, these four powerful words. It profits me nothing. It profits me nothing. So when I read that, I'm left thinking, well, if the most holy Christian things, feeding the poor, moving in miracles and signs and wonders, doing good, if those things ultimately profit you nothing, then what does profit did anyone else feel like they needed to ask that question? What is profitable? Because in this verse here, we're not, like I said last week, we're not just looking at earthly things. We're looking at the most holy things. We're looking at works that you can only do if you're divinely empowered by the Holy Spirit. Has anyone tried to perform a miracle by themselves? I've given it a go. It hasn't worked out for me yet. I'm not sure if anyone else. But the works that God is saying is worthless are even divinely inspired, divinely empowered works. And Paul says they profit nothing if we don't have this one thing, which is love. The divine nature of our Father on the inside. But if we do have the divine nature, if we do have love, then these works all of a sudden don't flow from an empty place. They flow from a full place. They, they flow from a place of identity, and they become eternally valuable because it says we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for our works. Interesting, our works, but not any works. Not even divinely inspired works, but the works that come from a place of being secure in our relationship with God, a place, uh, works that flow from a place of love. Having come from being transformed on the inside, being a, a brand new creation, we then administer that same love that we've received to a lost and broken world. It's very different to the gospel, I think, that 
that many in the church have preached over the last hundred years. So our second verse, everyone got their finger in the, the second verse? You can flick there now. Matthew chapter 16, 24 to 28. All right, shall we just read this out together? Oh, sorry, I'll, I'll read it to you. <laughs> All right. Then Jesus said to his disciples, all right, actually, let me just, let's come here. All right. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must pray a prayer, invite Jesus into his heart, and go and get serving in the church. Because when he does, um, he'll be able to influence the world, save the lost, and it will be of real benefit to himself. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but for whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Does anyone else have another translation? <laughs> Maybe. But actually, this is the gospel according to the modern-day um, Christian circles, right? This is what Christianity often looks like. You come in, you pray a prayer for forgiveness for your sins, you get saved, and then you get into church. And then if you're a really good Christian, you'll start serving at church, and if you're an even better Christian, you might even give some money to the church. But actually, this isn't what Jesus says is what Christianity is about at all. In fact, it says this, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Do you feel that, mm, if any man come after me, he must deny himself? Um, sorry, um, excuse me? Oh, we're not talking about Christianity here, are we? Deny, our, deny ourselves. But actually, this is day one. Levi was telling me, our two-year-old was telling me yesterday at the, in the McDonald's car park, um, I'm going to school soon, Daddy. <laughs> this would be, if we were sitting in a classroom, this would be the first lesson. Because he says, if any man come after me, he must deny himself. This is day one at primary school for us as a Christian family. Wouldn't you say so? If any man come after me, he must deny himself. If any man, the, any man, okay, well, let's, I thought it was just the eldership that needed to live in this way. He doesn't say, if any man wants to become the most highest, loftiest, awesomest, best Christian in all of creation, he must. He doesn't say if any man wants to be an elder, if any man wants to be a leader, if anyone wants to be a worship leader or whatever we term we're, we're calling them, then he must deny himself. But he says this, if any man. All of a sudden, that doesn't just mean me. It means you. Shock horror. If any man come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. We're not talking about an elite Christian club here. We're talking about Christianity 101. 
this is your first step. You must deny yourself. But we're going to look at what that means in a moment. You know, to be honest, in, in my personal opinion, I feel like apathy has been sweeping the church across the world that attending services and praying some prayers and going to a prayer meeting once a week has almost become normal Christianity. But actually, when we get into the scriptures and we look at the reality that's contained in these words, this is not what Christianity is about at all. In fact, Christianity isn't about doing as a first place priority. It's about becoming. It's not about doing works. It's about receiving the divine nature of our Father on the inside that then empowers a new way of living. You know, John Wesley, um, way back, I think it must have been the 16 or 1700s, um, he had what they called a holy club. And it was for the top dogs of the Christian era who would come and keep themselves separate from the world. But actually, this message is not just for the holy club. It's for the entire Christian community. If any man comes after me, what does it mean to come after him? In my mind, to come follow someone, almost as like this, you know, um, you've got a dog and it's like, heel, come on, come on, chop, 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 chop. Jesus is walking, he's doing his thing, and he's trying to get people to, to come along. And is that, is that what coming after means? Is that what following means? These are big questions that we need to wrestle with, right? And like I said, we're looking and taking what's written in the scriptures and bringing it to light this morning. You know, for those who don't know, I'm a big basketball fan. Um, and going on in the NBA at the moment, there's a, a lot of crazy kind of transitions. But one in particular is that back in the day, you needed to be a big solid unit to be able to participate in the NBA. And so there's a guy called LeBron James. Does anyone in this room know LeBron James? Yeah. More people knew. That was more hands than my wakeboarding example last week. <laughs> Yeah, LeBron. LeBron James is, if you can imagine, part man, part monster, part beast, part giant, part... This is, Le, this is LeBron James. He's about six foot eight. He's as wide as he is tall. He can jump almost as high as the rim. No, not quite. But he is, he is an absolute freak of nature. And he epitomizes what it meant to be an NBA superstar from all ages past. But then there's a new guy that came on the scene a number of years ago. His name was Stephen Curry. Has anyone heard of Stephen Curry? Now, Stephen Curry is probably, you, I, would, I wouldn't call him a freak of nature. He is probably about the same size as me, which is tiny for the NBA. He's a scrawny, skinny guy. He can't actually even grow a mustache, um, and he gets a lot of stick about it. But anyway, this guy, Steph Curry, stepped onto the scene, and he revolutionized the game of basketball because all of a sudden he started shooting three-pointers from anywhere inside half court and nailing them. And now what happens in the NBA is things started to shift, the game started to change, but even more so what happened not just to the NBA, but in basketball as a whole is it started to become not just a big guy's game, but an everyone's game. When people used to look at LeBron and wish that they could be him, people started to look at Steph Curry and think that they could become like him. Why? Because it wasn't a unique identity 
that was contained to one man's human nature, once in a lifetime athleticism. It was a reality that was available to everyone else who through entering into the right process could all of a sudden participate in the game that they could never participate in before. So the issue was never the athleticism. The issue was always the perspective and the attitude. See, this guy, Steph Curry, was absolutely determined. Day in, day out. Everyone on the surface had written him off except for one coach that he had growing up who said, no, you can do this. And through stepping into what was available to him, he became one of the most incredible basketball players of all time. Now for us as the church, we can look at what it means to follow Jesus and see his incredible miracles, to see his integrity, to see the way that he loved, to see the way that he went to the cross. But we can look at it and wish that we were him. We can wish that we were somehow better than we, than we are. We could wish, wish, wish. Or we can see ourselves as made of the same substance. It says that he partook of flesh and blood. And we can see him not as someone external to us that we can never become like because he has a greater capacity than us. But we can see him and the reality that he lived in as being who we were always chosen and called to become and step into it. Different perspective, eh? Different way of seeing things. So all of a sudden, it's no longer the fact that he was divine, right? It's the fact that he had the divine nature inside of him, which we can have also. That's a different gospel, I have to say. So he says, if any man comes after me, coming after him, like I said, is not just following along, following along like a dog and doing the same actions, walking the same walk the same behavior, following after him looks like becoming like him on the inside. I shared about a year ago um, at, at Banquet about the difference between emulating and imitating. Emulating being you copy someone's actions. Imitating means that you come into the same substance of life. So when Jesus says, come follow me, he's not just talking about action. He's talking about the reality and substance that we live from on the inside. Come follow me. Come and, be, come and be like me. You know, Jesus said it's enough for a disciple to become like his master. It's enough. That's the highest expression is simply to become like him. It's not to perform miracles. It's not to win the lost. It's to have the divine nature living on the inside of us. So if any man comes after me, he must. Oh, can you say the word must in this modern age where everyone has their opinion, everyone has their thoughts, everyone can do what they like, everyone can believe what they want to believe, and, it's, and everything's okay. He must. Now, to me, this shows the most pure form of authority. He doesn't say, here, I'm taking you by the scruff of the neck and make it. No. But he says, if you want to enter into this life, there's a process that you must go through. This is true biblical authority. Not that he would force you to do something, but that having been through the same process, he would bring to light 
what it looks like to go through that too. And he's saying, if you don't do this one thing, you won't enter into life. If you don't eat healthy, you won't get this kind of physique. Oh, wait, sorry, I don't have much of a physique to aspire to, and I don't eat particularly healthy. But in the natural world, right, you can't, you, you must eat healthy and do exercise to be healthy, right? It's a must. We're all okay with musts. You must turn up at work to get paid. You must turn up on time to not get fired. Every must is, seems to be okay in the world, but then we get to the scriptures. It's almost like, can, we, can he really say you must? Can he really? And he says, a new commandment I give to you. A new commandment, love one another. Not a new suggestion, not a new idea, not a new proposal. Take it or leave it. You must. You must. This is the true position of authority. He knows that there's no other way in except through him. So he doesn't force you, bring you kicking and screaming, but he lays it out in his clear as clear can be to say there's one way come follow me he must deny himself deny himself man this is getting a bit heavy for a Sunday morning deny himself you know the word in the Greek deny does anyone know what it means it does mean deny. <laughs> but literally it means to disown. Interesting. To disown. He must disown himself. Disown means to repudiate, to repudiate any connection or identification with. Interesting. So all of a sudden he's taking this from an action or a works-based to an identity-based commandment. It's less about what you're doing, and it's more about how you identify. Interesting. If anyone comes after me, he must disown himself, pick up his cross and follow me. See, you can deny yourself chocolate. You can deny yourself coffee, eh, Mark? Not that exciting. You can deny yourself even your career. You can, you can deny your time to take care of your children. There's so many things that you can deny yourself of, but you can't disown yourself. But Jesus says you must. Interesting. You can deny yourself and serve in the deny your time and serve in the church. You can deny yourself and get up at 5 a.m. every morning in prayer. There's so many good Christian things that you can do by denying yourself. But the one thing that you can't do is believe the gospel and come into a completely brand new identity 
where you disown who you were born into in Adam and receive who you were always called to be in Christ. It's an identity issue. If you want to come after me, you must disown yourself. You must disown what you were born into. You must disown the selfish, self-centered nature that you were affected with at the fall. You must disown your bitterness, your jealousy, your unforgiveness, your resentment. You must disown them. You must disassociate yourself with everything that you used to be and receive the reality of the gospel of who you were always called to be and step into it. You must disown everything that came and flowed from the Adam life and step into who you were called to be in Christ. You must. And you must not look back. Lot's wife turned back and what happened to her? She turned to a pillar of salt. Why? Because she heard a gospel about moving forward and stepping into, but she was still associating and identifying herself with the past. And somewhere along the line, rejecting the gospel will run out of opportunities. But there is an opportunity today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Believe who he said that you've called to be and disown everything that was part of the old and step into everything that he has for you. The new man, the new nature, the new life. Why is this so important? Why is it so important that we deny and disown ourselves and not just uh, why we uh, disown ourselves and not just deny ourselves certain things. Because if you, start to de- if you start living a life where you're denying yourself and you deny yourself without disowning yourself, you'll deny yourself one day and then the next day you'll have to deny yourself again and then the day after that you'll be saying, my goodness, God is so demanding. He expects so much of me. I gave up this for him yesterday, and he's asking for this today? And all of a sudden, relationship with God becomes the biggest drag of your life. It's hard. It's frustrating. Every day is a a sacrifice. Every day you're suffering for Jesus. But he didn't actually ask you to suffer for him. He called you to follow him and that sufferings would come but with great joy. Why? Because if you deny yourself, then you've got to deny yourself every other time. But if you disown yourself, you completely give up every right to your own life. Your life is laid down and you stay in that place. That every commandment then becomes a joy because you've already given your yes before he actually asks you to do something. You start to read the scriptures that talk about a selfless life. And you say, God, thank you for who you've called me to be. You remember that your life is dead and buried, and all you see is the new man that's been created in God for good works. 
It no longer becomes a sacrifice because the sacrifice has already been made. It's done and dusted. The decision has already been accomplished. You start to live and flow from a brand new identity, having put off the old and put on the new. I've just put here, we've kind of covered this, because the gospel was never about self-sacrifice and self-denial. It was about living from the divine nature. In order to deny ourselves, we must see who we are in Christ. Now, I've got an example for you. Um, you can turn your, your scriptures. Just keep, keep one, like I said, keep one finger um, where it is in Matthew. And um, if you want to, you can come to Second Samuel chapter 9. This is a very interesting little passage. I'll just give you a bit of context. And thank you to Kathleen who found this after I'd been like wrestling over this passage for a long time, not knowing where it was. But there's a, um, so the context, we've got David, who was the king of Israel, Saul, who was the previous king of Israel, and Jonathan, who was Saul's son. All right. And David, who's the current king, wants to honor um, this, this son. Um, and listen, check this name out, Mahibasheth. Yeah, next name for your baby, I reckon. <laughs> Mahibasheth. And so David, who's the king, comes to the son of Jonathan, who is also of the kingly, um, kingly line, and he wants to do good to him. And he says this words. Um, let's see. Um, verse 7. David said to him, he come, this is to Mehibosheth, Do not fear, for I will show, surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul. And you shall eat at my table regularly. And he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard him as a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and in his house I have given to your master's grandson. That's Mehibosheth. You and your sons and your servant's son shall cultivate this land for him and you shall bring in produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mahibasheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Interesting little passage. Oh, look at that, onto it on the board. So you've got this scenario. And sorry, actually, let me, let me skip down. Verse 13, so Mahibasheth lived in, in Jerusalem and he ate from the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. It's a bit of context for you. So Mahibasheth is this guy who is crippled in his feet. He can hardly walk. And David, who's the king, comes to Mahibasheth and says, Hey, I have so much to give you. I want to honor Jonathan, who was um, Saul's son, because of the, the um, relationship that he had with him. And I want to honor you. So I want to bring you and seat you at the king's table and give you all of the, the treasures um, of Israel. 
And listen to Mahabasheth's reaction to when this promise comes. What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? What a reaction. Mahabasheth, I'm coming and I want, him, I want you to become part of this royal family. I'm a dead dog. It's, does, in anyone else's mind, is that the most bizarre reaction? And yet that can be the very reaction that we have to the gospel when Jesus calls us to live a righteous life, to love like him, to think like him, to see like him. Being divinely empowered by his spirit and the divine nature that he wants to impart into us that we can turn around and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm actually just a human being. I can't live like that. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the ability to live like that and reject the gospel. Why? Because Mahibasheth couldn't deny himself. And in this passage, self-denial didn't look like giving up all of his own possessions. It looked like giving up the nature and his own identification of who he was, and letting go of the past, letting go of the fact that thinking he was a dog, a crippled, someone who could never make it, and laying hold of who David had now said that he was, part of the royal family. Interesting. So for Behibosheth, denying self wasn't about giving up all of his possessions. It was about disowning an identity that he had grown up with. Letting that go, letting that be done and dusted in the past and, and stepping into the new man. And Mahibasheth came and ate at the king's table. He let go of the old and he laid hold of the new. All right, I've got the second point. I don't know if I even said what the first point was. First point, if you're writing notes, was in order to live from the divine nature, we must believe who we've become in Christ. And the second point, in order to live from the divine nature, we must let go of everything that came from our old identity in Adam and lay hold of the true reality available in Christ. You can get those words again on the, um, on the recording. So we've got here, uh, let me come back to the uh, Matthew Scripture. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I wonder how you hear that verse. What do you hear when I read that out to you? Do you hear lose your life? Or do you hear find life? I wonder what you identify with. Because all of a sudden what we've just talked about, about the identity that you live from will determine how you hear that verse. If anyone comes after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In order to 
It must, you must lose your life to find life. See, if you're a servant, you'll hear lose your life. You'll hear the suffering, the sacrifice, the strain, the, stri- the, the struggle. But if you're a son, you'll hear that there's a new life available in Christ for you to step into. You know, so much so that the people that put this translation of the Bible, this is not scripture, but they say this in the title. The title in the NASB says this, Discipleship is Costly. Interesting. Is discipleship costly? Well, in some ways it is. But would it not be better to say, as a son, knowing that it's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom and to impart into us the divine nature of our Father, would it not be better to say that discipleship is the most profitable thing you could ever be a part of? See, discipleship is profitable, not costly. Or let me say this, it's profitable first, but costly second. And the weight of the profit so outweighs the cost of discipleship that you never look back to the cost and get frustrated about that again. How are we seeing it? How do we receive the living scripture when it comes, fear or faith? as a son or as a slave. I've heard time and time again, you've just got to count the cost. You've got to count the cost. You've got to count the cost. And it's true. There's even parables about it. But what about counting the profit? What about counting the opportunity? What about counting the value that we've been invited into in Christ? You know, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this. Let me just flick there. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. Interesting, and I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, in view. He counted the value of knowing Christ as greater treasure than the cost that would come to his own life. Now, let me give you an example of counting the value as opposed to just the cost. So Tess and I, about a year ago, we bought a house, which was great. And this house, um, on the inside, it probably looked like Mahibasheth felt. It was a little bit of a dead dog on the inside. But um, it had the same fluoro blue carpet that was probably put down in the house when it was built all those years ago. It had green wallpaper, green paneling. They were all, all the carpets in different rooms were mismatched and the wallpaper in different rooms were different shades of color and floral and all, all sorts of goodness. And so Tess and I had been looking for a house for a little while and if anyone else here has been looking for a house, the housing market at this stage is absolute chaos. Would you agree? You see on the news we've got what they call a housing crisis. There's more people that want houses than there are houses. And so when Tess and I were looking at all these places, how many offers did we put in on houses, Tess? Five, maybe? 
maybe eight. We spent about two years from start to two years looking. We put in about eight different offers on houses, offers that we thought, some were low offers, some we thought were, were reasonable, some we weren't surprised to miss out, others we were surprised. And so when looking for this house, we came across the place that we're in at the moment. Um, and um, on the outside, it looked great, but on the inside, it was incredibly old, run down, and it needed a lot of work. And we were at the stage where we were just so done at house hunting. We were just so sick of it. And we came across this place, and this place, we're like, man, we, we walked inside, and we talked about it afterwards, and we're like, man, this place has some potential. It looks like a bit of a dead dog, but imagine what it's going to be like when it got brought to life. But yet we were still up against the reality of this housing market that was absolutely chaos, that houses were going for thousands of dollars above their RVs. And so we realized, man, we've got to approach this in a different way. So instead of thinking about, okay, how much, how much does this house cost? How much is the land? How much are the, the bones? How much is the structure of the house? We needed, this, we needed a, a completely different way of thinking and mindset if we were to get our way into the housing market. So instead of thinking about the cost of the place, we started thinking about the value of it. And so we calculated how much is this house worth to us when it's, when it's done up, when it's in its complete form? What's the value of this place? And from there, we worked our way back. Okay, how much does it cost to renovate? What's the cost of putting down some new carpet? What's the cost of stripping wallpaper and doing paint? Different way of thinking, eh? One's about the cost, but the other's about the potential and the value. Because the reality of the housing market is that it's so tense that you can't put in lowball offers and get in anymore because people have moved on from that way of thinking. Developers are coming in and thinking, man, what's, what's the value of a complete, what, what's the value of this thing when it's perfectly complete with three houses on the back section and the inside done up? That's their mentality. And so we needed to come into this thing with a different perspective. And we looked at the cost, of the value of the place, and then we counted the cost. And we managed to get the house. Now I say this because it requires a certain kind of mentality to enter into the kingdom of God. Now it says that the kingdom is forcefully advancing and violent men lay hold of it. That you must be a violent man to lay hold of the kingdom but the only way that you're going to lay hold of the kingdom is by accurately counting the value and the preciousness of knowing Christ and receiving the divine nature of the Father on the inside. It's the only thing that will motivate you to let go of yourself. And just like our house, the only thing that would motivate us to pay a certain price for the house was not the cost of it, but the value of it. That's the only thing that would let us go our entire savings and everything that we owned. Why? Because it's worth it. Because of the value of the thing is worth more than the cost that you'd pay to get it. And this is the heartbeat of the gospel. This is what true repentance actually is. You see the goodness of God and you surrender to it. We saw the value of the completed work. I wonder if you've seen the value of who you are when he's inside of you. Because that's what he saw when he came 
came to earth to lay down his life for you. He didn't see your sin. He didn't see you're missing the mark, although he was aware of it. He saw your potential and value so much so that it motivated him to the cross and that the cross would be a joy to him. Christianity is to be a joy. Christianity is to be so full of life because we've received the most awesome and precious possession and it's motivated us to let go of everything else. So the kingdom is forcefully advancing and whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know there the word life doesn't actually mean your time, your possessions, your energy, your effort. The word life actually literally means your soul. Interesting. For whoever wishes to save his soul will lose it, but whoever loses his soul for my sake will find it. So just tying this back to what we were talking about before, if you want the new divine nature of our Father, not just to be given to you as a possession, but to be expressed through you as a reality of your everyday life, you must let go entirely of your old nature, laying hold of the kingdom that's forcefully advancing and force your way into it. You must let go of your old soul life. Like I said, the life that you were born into an Adam and lay hold of the new. You must let go of all of your right to feel unforgiveness, frustrated, bitter, annoyed, grumpy, why? Because that's all flown from another place and all of a sudden your repentance becomes, Father, thank you that you've called me to something higher and greater than that. I'm going to step into and live from who you've said I am and not who I used to be. The only thing that's keeping us from that life is insisting that the old life is good enough, that the natural life, the normal life, is what Christianity really is. That it's normal to feel these things. And it is normal, but it's normal to Adam, and he's elevating us to a greater and higher form of life than just that. So the issue no longer is now if you feel those things. No, no. The issue is how you deal with them. The issue is whether when these things come up, you identify yourself with them. Why? Because it shows that you're, oh, what, was, what was our words before? It shows that you've never disowned yourself. You identify with the old man. You identify with brokenness. You identify with being a victim. You identify with the old. But that old man needs to be disowned through repentance and the renewing of your mind to who God says you are and that you would step into it and live from it. The word of God must come and divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. Like I said, the word life means the word soul. It must divide us on the inside and separate us from identifying ourselves with who we're not. And it must build us up in the most holy and awesome truth until our entire mind is renewed 
to the fact that we're called and chosen, that every good and precious gift has been given to us. Every good and precious promise has been given so that we can become a partaker of the divine nature, that it's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom, that the mentality that says we're not, that condemns us is disowned. And we stand strong and true in who God says we are. That's true and real repentance. So the last part, whoever wishes to lose his life, uh, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever loses his life for my sake. There's so many things that you could lose your life for in this world, right? People lose their lives all the time. Like I talked about, Stephen Curry and LeBron James have both lost their life for basketball. People lose their lives for career. Really, it means that you invest yourself into it and you identify yourself with that thing. People are prepared to lose their lives to win a gold medal. These are extreme examples, but you can lose your life for your career. You can lose your life for your kids. You can lose your life for your wife, for your family. There's so many things vying for your attention that you could lose your life for. But Jesus says that you must lose your life for, for what? For my sake to find it. You must disown your life and your identification with any other thing other than him to find and enter into the brand new life that's available in him. It says where your treasure is, there your heart is. And if your treasure is in these other things, your heart will be there too. But if your treasure is in knowing him, then your heart will be there too. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? An interesting verse, hey? And I think I might just, I'll finish on that and leave that there. And you guys can have a ponder on, on that question that Jesus asks. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? But we know that we have an earthly and an eternal profit that is worth more than any worldly thing that is totally and really available for all those who will say yes and amen to him. So, Father, I pray that the sword of your spirit will penetrate our hearts. Father, that we'll no longer identify ourselves with who we were born into in Adam but we will identify ourselves as the new man, you say, created in God for good works. Father, the new man who um, doesn't hold offense, who doesn't hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, Father, but the new man that loves, that sees value, that sees potential. Father, the new man that loves you and, Father, is laid down for you. Father, let us see ourselves in Christ and naturally and organically live from the reality of a new life inside of us, the divine nature of our Father. We pray this in your awesome and precious name. Amen.